I want to briefly introduce our preacher today, Bradley Troll. He is the son-in-law of Karen and Tim Eilers, and a recent graduate from Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon. I actually found out recently we shared a church history class together a few years ago, uh, and he was definitely the smartest student in the class, so you're in for a treat. He's also a youth pastor at a church in Oregon, uh, so if you can uh, join me in welcoming Brad the Troll. Thank you so much, Tyler. Yeah, it was so funny. He's like, now wait a minute, we were at Western at the same time. We were talking, it's like, wait, I think we had church history together. He starts describing the room. I'm like, oh yeah, no, that was, that was the one. It's like, small world. Uh, I was really thankful that Monty asked me to be here today. Um, it's, a, it's a blessing to, to get to share from God's word. So um, we're going to go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 2, which is the passage we will be looking at today. So many of us know the hymn, Blessed Assurance, and if you didn't, you at least got to sing it. So thank you to the Griffins for accepting my request on that for worship team. So um, a lot of us know the hymn, Blessed Assurance, or at least have heard it, but many of us don't know the story behind it, and I think that this is really amazing. The author of the lyrics name is Fanny J. Crosby. And as you sing the song, you can hear her love for the Lord, her enthusiasm for life, but as you look at her story, she had every reason to be the opposite of who she was. At six weeks old, she went blind because of a doctor's mistake. He put some, I think it was some kind of poultice on her eyes, and it caused blindness at six weeks old. Um, at six years old, Oh, sorry, no, six months old, her father passed away. And then as an adult, her and her husband had only one child, a daughter, who died as an infant. And yet, 14 years later, while at a friend's house, her friend Mrs. Joseph Knapp had just written a piece on her piano. And so she played this piece, the one you just heard, and she turned to her friend Fanny and said, Fanny, what, what does this say? And she knelt down in prayer and stood back up saying, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. How does someone with such a background have such joy? She has so many reasons to blame God or to be angry at him. But instead, in her lifetime, she wrote lyrics for more than 8,000 hymns. So, talk about a life's work. So in our passage today, we're going to be talking about our assurance that we have as Christians. And in 1 John, it's interesting because John kind of comes at it from a different angle than we usually do when we're talking about assurance. So to give you a little bit of background, the books of 1, 2, and 3 John are called epistles, which are just letters written to a specific audience. And we don't know exactly who the audience is as commentators and theologians like to do. Everybody has their own ideas. But I think we do know some things from these books. We learn that they were dealing with a lot of turmoil. 
Specifically, there were false teachers, and there was a lot of uncertainty. And in one of the passages, John says something like, they went out from us to prove that they were not truly with us. And so what we gather from that is, this is written to a church that was meeting, and then some of the members decided to leave, and they started spreading false teaching. So if you put yourself in their shoes, we're talking about, you know, people in the pews next to you leave, and then they come back and say, oh, no, we were wrong that whole time. This is actually the truth. And we don't know exactly what kind of a false teaching they were spreading. We get little hints here and there, but it's clear that these people are like, okay, who do we listen to? Because we are, our church community is saying one thing, and then people that were once with us left, and they're coming back and they're saying, no, we were wrong the whole time. And so in the midst of this turmoil, John writes this letter. So we're going to start in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. I will read, and, he, and John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning, the old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. In this passage, I think the main point that John is giving us here is that our assurance is indeed found in Christ, but we can see God's work in our lives through faith, through our obedience, and our love. So in verses 3 through 6, John says that obedience is important. What does he say about obedience? He says the obedient know God. And those that are not obedient, that claim to know him, are liars. Now the question is, 
Does this mean that as believers we're going to be perfect? I've only visited a few times, but I know that Summit Park is committed to teaching what the Scripture says. And what that means is you have to teach the passages that are uncomfortable sometimes, as well as the ones that are a lot easier to preach. And so I think it's easy for passages like these to sound like works righteousness. Okay, the obedient know God, the disobedient don't. But what we have to do with any passage like this, you have to look at the context. You have to look at the verses surrounding it. You have to look at the whole context of the Bible. And so when we look in 1 John, or 2nd, sorry, no, 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, right before our passage, what does he say? He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So is this saying that the believer is perfect? Absolutely not. We continue the first two verses we read. He says, my little children... I'm writing these things so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And this word propitiation is a really important one because what this means is that by his death, Jesus satisfied God's wrath against our sin And not only that, but turned it into favor. I've heard it explained this way, that if you have your faith in Christ, when God looks down on you, he doesn't see what you've done or not done. He sees the righteousness of Christ. And so what John is getting at here is the life of the believer is a life of consistency, not a life of perfection. So if you ever come across a verse like this and it's freaking you out, Look at the context. That's really, really important. And as we heard from Romans 6 earlier in the service, Christ's death has changed the believer. We are no longer slaves to sin. Flip back with me to Romans 6. We'll read just a couple of those verses again. I just think it's so important. We'll start in verse 1 of Romans 6. Paul writes here, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And if you skip to the end of the passage here, Romans 6, 22 and 23, he says, but now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So John writes this, Paul writes this, They say Christians are characterized by 
obedience. We should live lives that are shaped by God and by his word, which gives us confidence that we have eternal life through Christ. And I think that's why John writes this, as he says that these indicators of, of obedience and love, these are tangible things. I think sometimes for us, it's difficult to say, okay, I know I have my assurance in Christ, but what does that look like? And John says, well, this is what it looks like. It looks like obedience. It looks like growing in love. It looks like the Lord's work, the Holy Spirit working in your heart and changing you. Sometimes this verse can be confusing. Uh, 1 John 2, verse 5, it says that our, our love, that the love of God is perfected by us, depending on your translation. I don't know what, what your Bibles say, but um, the one I'm using right here talked about being perfected. And so I did some research into it, and I found John Stott, who's a, um, an Anglican commentator, he wrote that this verse, this word here can be translated complete as well. And I think that that really fits the context as it's saying God's love in us, our love of God, is not complete until we live that out in obedience. That would be like somebody saying they love their spouse, but they never spend any time with them, never go on a date with them, never brag about them to other people. It's not a complete love. And in addition to our obedience, in verses 7 through 11, he calls for love. So we'll read that section again, starting in verse 7. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is, in, is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes." So in addition to obedience to God, the Christian life should be a life characterized by love. And he says here, this is not a new teaching, and this is a new teaching, which honestly, when I first read this passage, I was kind of confused at what he was getting at here. But I think there's a couple things to keep in mind. Number one, our command to love one another is not new to 1 John chapter 2. You go all the way back to Leviticus, where you have the command to love your neighbor. And if you want to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, you have Cain as a negative example. Cain is angry at his brother and kills him and is punished for it. So it's clear that from the beginning, this, this is a command to love our neighbor, to love those around us. But I think it's important also to remember, this is not... One of the, these three epistles are not the only books that John wrote. So turn back with me to John chapter 13. In John's gospel, I believe, is where we can find the key to this strange back and forth on new command and not a new command. So in John chapter 13, we're going to start in verse 34. 
So John 13, 34, and 35, this is Jesus talking to his disciples, including John, our author of 1 John and this gospel, and he says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So here, I was honestly blown away when I went to this passage because I just went for the new commandment, old commandment language. But then, in the midst of it, what does Jesus say? The same thing that John says. People will know that you are my disciples if you love. And so when John says this is an old command, this is a new command, I think he's saying it's old because Jesus said it. But it's new because that's the words that Jesus used when he first told his disciples, a new commandment I give to you. And if church history is to be believed, the Apostle John never forgot. I'm going to read here an excerpt from the church father Jerome in his commentary on Galatians. He told this story about John. The blessed John the Evangelist lived in Ephesus until extreme old age. His disciples could barely carry him to church, and he could not muster the voice to speak many words. During individual gatherings, he usually said nothing but, little children love one another. The disciples and brothers in attendance, annoyed because they always heard the same words, finally said, teacher, why do you always say this? He replied with a line worthy of John, because it is the Lord's commandment, and if it alone is kept, it is sufficient. So John definitely practiced what he preached, and we even see that in this letter. If you look at the beginning of verse 7 again, what does he call the people? He calls them beloved. He calls them in this letter little children. In chapter 2, verse 1, you can feel John's love for his audience as he writes, commanding them to do the very thing that he's modeling. So John teaches us that the Christian life is characterized by obedience and characterized by love, and we see this is not just unique to John. Paul says something similar. Jesus also teaches the same. And I think for us, we see this in many parts of our lives. So my home church is a little rural church um, in Oregon in a little community called Perrydale, but the associate pastor at my church is a professor at Corbin, and he teaches speech class. And the joke about him around campus is that he mentions his wife every single class period during speech class. And I'll tell you, I took his class. It's not every class, but sometimes she gets multiple mentions, so it evens out to about once per class. But the things that are important to us are obvious. One of the first times when I met James Griffin, and he found out that my family was from Dallas, Texas, he told me, I'm a big Dallas Stars fan. And he then went on to say, and one of my favorite players is Jamie Benn, because that's one of his nicknames is Jamie. So the things that we care about are obvious. They also shape even the way that we think or see the world. One of my favorite authors is named Aldo Leopold, and he just writes beautifully about the natural world that God created. And even though he's not a believer, I still feel like I can just 
I can experience the joy of seeing God's creation through reading his works. But he talks about on his property, seeing that there was a deer trail that was obscured, so he spent all day clearing out the brush so he could see the deer move back and forth on the trail. And then he said this. He said that there's three types of people. He said that there's the deer hunter, and you can, he can tell that someone's a deer hunter because when they're walking in the woods, they're always watching the next bend because you never know when there's going to be a deer around the next corner. He said the duck hunter is always watching the skies, watching for ducks. And he says that the bird hunter is always watching the dog. And so he always knows where the dog is. And so as he writes that, he says that even the things that we do shape how we view and experience the world. Because I'll tell you, if you have the deer hunter, the duck hunter, and the bird hunter see the same thing, you're probably going to get really different experiences if you ask them about it. And so we understand this in so much of our everyday life, in our relationships, in our hobbies. So when John says that our lives should be shaped by obedience and shaped by love, this is not works righteousness. This is common sense to us. This is, there is a change that happens in us based on what we believe and what we care about. And I think this can bring us to an uncomfortable place. I think the question comes then, what if I don't see myself growing in obedience, growing in love of those around me? I think it's important to stop and say, first and foremost, this book was written as an encouragement. So I don't want this to be something that causes people to struggle, to fear, but to say, okay, this is an encouragement passage. But at the same time, the Bible does call us to examine ourselves. If you feel like you're in this boat right now and you're like, I don't really know if I see, if I see growth, if I see the Holy Spirit working to, in, um, in me to grow in obedience, to grow in love for my neighbor, now would be a great time to just pause, be honest with yourself, be honest with the Lord, and just ask yourself, what am I putting my faith in? And I'll warn you, if the answer is not Christ, it's not going to be enough. The good news is that the opportunity is always wide open. There's always an opportunity to put your faith in Christ and to have this assurance that John is writing about. If you have put your faith in Christ, I want to encourage you, do not doubt your salvation. I know for me personally, growing up for a long time, that was something I really struggled with. It's like, oh, have I really put my faith in the Lord? Like, I don't know. Do I have to do it again? Maybe I haven't. And that was just a struggle I had for many years. But I think it's important for us to, to look at this letter and say, what was their issue? Their issue was false teachers. And not false teachers from out there. False teachers that used to be right here with us and now are leaving and saying something different. And so these people are in turmoil, and the goal here is John writes his letters not to create doubt, but to defeat it. And what John is saying and what I'm trying to encourage you to see is that whether you are brand new to Christ or you've followed him for a long time, the Holy Spirit is at work. And that's what John's pointing to, the Holy Spirit's work that draws us into obedience, that draws us into love. I think beyond personal discernment, 
looking again at the fact that they were dealing with false teachers, this passage can be useful for us today as indicators. When you look at someone who claims to be teaching God's word, these are things we can look to see. These are indicators we can look for in their lives. I had the opportunity when I was a a senior at Corbin to visit Cameroon, West Africa on a trip with um, with the ministry faculty and some students. And it was so sad to see how big of a hold the prosperity gospel has there. Because especially to people that are super poor, the message of, if you give my ministry money, God will bless you, is so potent. And so if you look and you use this and ask, what do these people really love? We walked by one church and they had huge speakers and the guy was just yelling and it was just so loud. And we walked by and we looked over and one of the pastors was like, yeah, that's, that church is just prosperity gospel It's not actually about what Jesus did for you. It's about give me money and God will bless you. So when you look at people like that and you look around in America, how many celebrity pastors do we have that care a lot more about money than loving their brother? I think this passage can give us that discernment both personally and as we look to say, okay, Lord, who do I listen to? Who do I believe? And in the middle of talking about love, we get another reference that brings us back to, I think, John's main point, which is assurance. Verse 8, he says this, At the same time, it is a new commandment I I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. And this is the important part right here. Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. The darkness is passing away, and the light is shining. There is no question about the end. In John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So when he says here that we have the light that is shining in the darkness, this is clearly a reference to Christ. This is something John goes back to over and over, referring to Jesus as the light. And his kingdom grows, and Satan's kingdom of darkness will end. At the end of our passage here, we see in verses 12 through 14, we have assurance that comes in a poetic section. And so, again, lots of people have ideas, there's lots of debate, who are the little children, who are the fathers, who are the young men. Some people say, well, John calls everybody little children, so that's for everybody, and the fathers is somebody else. And so everybody has their ideas of whether it's actual ages, whether this is the spiritual maturity of people in the church, but don't get caught up in that. And I want you to say, to look at this and say, what does this tell us? This tells us that the believer has their sin forgiven, that the believer knows the father And that the believer has overcome the evil one. In my home church, actually right now, they're continuing their series on Revelation. And both Revelation and 1 John have the same purpose as a book. The purpose is encouragement. 
As confusing as Revelation is, one of the main points, if you read the beginning and the introduction is, this is an encouragement to the believers that everything is already set. Nothing is happening that is outside of God's plan. And so both Revelation and our book here, 1 John, are to encourage. So written to a people who are in turmoil, who are hearing voices all around them and they're not sure what to listen to, I don't know about you guys, it sounds pretty familiar to me. There's voices all around them. John is telling them, look at your lives and recognize God's work in them. And through that, you can recognize that you have assurance of your hope and your salvation. A Christian musician that I came across named Isaac Whedon has a song, and the lyrics to the song are just repeated over and over, and he just says, it's so amazing I'm at peace while the world isn't. I don't know about you guys, but I do definitely don't look around and see a world at peace. And so in the midst of that, he writes, and it's just so profound to me. Whenever I hear that song, I'm just like, wow, like that is, that is our position in Christ is that we can be at peace when the world around us isn't. So I want to ask you, do you have this peace? If you've never put your faith in Christ, you cannot have a lasting peace. Only by faith in Christ can you find this complete, this true, and this eternal peace. And as I mentioned earlier, there's no 12 steps to Jesus. You don't have to clean up something in your life before you come to him. Right here, right now, you can put your faith in Christ and have this peace, have this assurance. So in summary, John chapter 2, 1 through 14 reminds us that our assurance is based on Christ's sacrifice. Like Andrew mentioned earlier, this is not to do with our righteous deeds. This is something that Christ has done. But after putting our faith in Christ, what do we do? John tells us, that the life of the believer is characterized by love and obedience. That is God's work in our hearts. 1 John chapter 2 also tells us how to test our own hearts. It gives us a grid to determine the hearts of possible false teachers. And finally, it encourages those who believe in Jesus Christ. For a lot of books of the Bible, we have to take our best guess or do a good summary of what is the overall purpose of the book. But uh, John makes it easy in 1 John because in 1 John 5.13, he says, I've written this book so that people will believe in Jesus and have eternal life. So there you go. If you ever have a Bible class and you have to summarize the book, you get a verse, you don't even have to write it in your own words. And so with this being the purpose, um, it makes me think about a story that I heard about a guy named Ray Comfort. He was an evangelist, well, is an evangelist. He was born and raised in New Zealand. He lives in California right now. But I will ask the audience, does anybody know what the most popular sport in New Zealand is? Soccer. It's not soccer. What? 
Rugby. Did I hear? Yeah, rugby is the most popular sport in New Zealand. And in New Zealand, rugby, their national rugby team is almost always at the top. When you talk about world competition, they're never, they're never out of the mix. And so Ray Comfort says that Christians should live like he watches rugby. Now, sports fans, I'm going to warn you, this, this is a hard analogy because I, I couldn't take it. So this is how he watches rugby. He waits until the match is over. He checks the score. And if his team wins, then he watches it from the beginning. <laughs> so, yeah, that hurts, that hurts the... Um, the, well, like I said, my dad's from Dallas, so I'm a Cowboy fan, so I'll apologize for being a Cowboy fan in Seahawks country, but that hurts me a little bit. But what he says is that Christians should live like he watches rugby. He says it's amazing for his anxiety because he knows his team's going to win. So if they turn the ball over, if the other team scores, he's like, oh, it's okay. I know my team will win in the end. Otherwise, he doesn't watch the game. <laughs> but he says that this is how Christians should live. Because we know the final score. So we can have peace in the midst of all of the things going on in the world around us because we know the final score. We know that no matter how much Satan tries to throw a wrench into God's plan, he'll never succeed. Our assurance is not based on a hope, a it would be nice if, but instead, the work that is already done by Christ and the work that he will come back to finish someday. I love how Fanny J. Crosby doesn't just leave it at blessed assurance, but she continues to say, Jesus is mine. It's not just about assurance. It's not about punching your ticket to heaven so that you can hold on to it and sleep at night. It's about a relationship with Jesus. And when you have that relationship with Jesus, John says, we will see it play out in our lives, in our obedience, in our love. And so how can we apply this to ourselves? I think, first of all, we should say to the Christian, be encouraged. The point of this passage is to say, you know what? I know there's other people trying to say something else, but don't listen. Because your assurance comes through Christ. Turn that encouragement into praise and also continue to live into that life characterized by love and obedience as the Holy Spirit empowers you. To those of you who, if you've never put your faith in Christ, even if you were raised in the church, even if you call yourself a Christian, I want to say this is your opportunity it is not about the way you label yourself. It's not about the way you were raised. This is about a decision to put your faith in Christ and to follow him. So I would encourage you to take the opportunity right now and put your faith in Christ. I'm going to pray here in just a little bit, and I'll give you an opportunity to talk to the Lord on your own. And if you put your faith in him, you can have this assurance. You can have the joy that comes with knowing the final score, with knowing what's going to happen. I want you all to just think about this passage and reflect. Again, I'll give you a little bit of time to talk to the Lord on your own and just think, Lord, what would you have me take away from this passage? 
I have been so encouraged while reading this passage and recognizing that the Lord works in our hearts and that we can see and kind of have something tangible to grasp onto. I think that's hard sometimes to say what, you know, what do, how do I know that I'm saved in those moments when doubt hits and to say, okay, what does this say? Well, am I growing in obedience? Well, I got a long way to go, but, but I see him working. Do I love those around me? Again, I got a long way to go, but, but I can see him working. And those can point us back to the assurance we have in Christ. I'm going to go ahead and close this in prayer, and I will give a moment for all of you to talk to the Lord on your own. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you specifically for the letter of 1 John. I thank you for the assurance, Lord, that you offer to us through Christ. Lord, I thank you that your Holy Spirit works in our hearts. It teaches us and helps us to obey. It teaches us and helps us to love one another. Lord, those are hard things, and we cannot do them on our own. Lord, most of all, I thank you for Christ and his sacrifice and what that means for us. Thank you that we can live with certainty in a time full of uncertainty. Lord, we love you so much, and I pray that you would be working in every heart as we take a moment to just talk to you on our own. Father, thank you so much for bringing each and every one of us here to Summit this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to worship in community and to read from your word. Be with us this day. Amen. I want to encourage you, if this was the first time that you have made a decision to put your faith in Christ, I want to encourage you to talk to somebody. We want to celebrate with you. This is big.